Good evening, everybody. My name is Andrea, and on behalf of the Marion Library Service, I'd like to welcome you here tonight to our very special talk with author Victoria Perman. We're incredibly pleased to see you, so thank you for venturing out on a sort of slightly cold, dark Thursday night. So we're very grateful that you're here. Before beginning, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we meet tonight on the traditional lands of the Ghana people and to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So moving on, we are very, very honoured to have Victoria here with us tonight to discuss her new novel, A Woman's Work, set in 1956 in Melbourne and following two women as they enter the Australian Women's Weekly Cookery Competition. Victoria will be joined by Mercedes Mercier, a local author whose debut thriller White Noise was published by HarperCollins last year to wide acclaim. So without any further ado... I'd like you to join me in giving a warm welcome to Victoria and Mercedes. Thank you very much. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Mercedes Mercier. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here tonight to talk with Victoria about her latest book, A Woman's Work. Now, when I was researching for this chat, I had a look through some reviews and I found one that I think sums up a woman's work beautifully. It called it an authentic and inspiring story, a recipe for change to throw off the girdle and defy society's conventions, husbands, and even the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely loved this book. Victoria, I could Thank not... Thank you, that's very kind. I could not put it down. Just oh, everything was so meticulously researched. The characterisation, the setting, the era, it honestly just, it just blew me away. I've, I've never read anything quite like it. It was just... Every part of it was conveyed with such ease and such surety. It was just incredible. So, as you heard before, a woman's work gives us a look into the homes and lives of two women in 1950s post-war Australia. So, it's set during a time where women were mostly expected to stay home after marriage, look after their husbands, look after their kids. But it was also a time where women were starting to flex their muscles and were trying to break out of that mould. And we're introduced to two characters, both of whom I loved. So we've got Kathleen, who's a wife and mother of five, and I was absolutely exhausted reading about a day in Kathleen's life looking after her husband and five children. I just was exhausted reading it. I just couldn't even imagine what it, what it would have been like. And, and I didn't really have to elaborate much about what a woman's life was. I just think of the old mangle washing machine. Mm. No microwave. Yeah, the copper. <laughs> and the other character is Ivy, who is a single working mother of one. The two women, they're both very different, but are both struggling with the constraints that society has placed on them. And then along comes the Australian Women's Weekly Cookery Competition, which has a huge prize pool of money. And both women decide to enter the competition, but it ends up being more than just the chance to win some money. It's a catalyst for change as both women begin to be heard and take control of their lives. 
So I have to say, I felt the full range of emotions when I was reading this book. I was furious, I was horrified, but I was also really, really uplifted and, and really inspired. And once I'd finished it, I came away just being so incredibly grateful for the, for the Kathleen's and the Ivies of the world who, who did the work and made sure that future generations lived very different lives to, to how they lived. So, Victoria, I guess my first question would have to be, what inspired a woman's work? I was lucky enough about a month ago to interview Jackie French, who needs no introduction, I'm sure. In fact, her new book, Becoming Mrs Mulberry, is excellent if you haven't read it. I'm sure the library has it too. It's wonderful. Anyway, when I asked, I asked, so I asked you the same question because it's something I'm really interested in. Where do ideas come from? Mm. And she said, they don't come from one place. They come from a hundred places. And I thought that was so profound for me because that's kind of how I work as well. But the first idea for this book came from my really dear friend Sarah who runs Goodwood Books and Blackwood Books, if anyone knows those stores. And if you don't, please go in there and buy lots of books. She's a, a vintage second-hand book uh, seller. And I often go into uh, shops like hers and op shops in particular to look for out-of-print books because a lot of social history, especially old cookbooks and things, they're just not printed anymore and that's where I find them. So she always knows what I'm looking for. And, and when I wrote The Nurses' War, I already had the idea in my head, but I walked into Blackwood Books and there was a history of Harefield Hospital on the shelf yeah. which had been printed in the UK. I... I the, the gods were telling me that I should have written that book. So that was just absolutely crucial for me. So I haunt old bookshops and new ones, to be honest. So I walked into Blackwood Books one day and I said, hi, Sarah. And she said, and she just looked at me. I've got to do a bit of pantomime now. <laughs> so she looked at me and she just did this. <laughs> and she handed me this. And this is the booklet with all the prize-winning recipes from the Australian Women's Weekly 6,000-pound cooking contest, 1956. It's a, it was a supplement to the weekly on October 31st that year, and it's not even online. I, if people know what Trove is, it's an online resource which I just adore and thankfully it's been funded now to continue. But in Trove, I can look at old copies of the Women's Weekly going back to the very beginning and a whole lot of other magazines and other things and I used it extensively. But this is not on Trove because it was a supplement. So this is the most precious thing. Anyway, so she handed it to me and I looked at it. I don't know if you can see, it's just brilliant. There's a woman, like it's a farm, and there's a woman with a pot and a wooden spoon and she's banging the pot <laughs> with a wooden spoon. And there's a couple of little kids and there's hubby in the back and there's chickens and a cow. Obviously she's saying it's time for dinner, you know. Just love it. And she, I said, oh, my God. And she said, I know, right? And I said, that's my next book. And she went, yeah. And, and that's where the, so that's where the idea came from. <laughs> It's handed it is, to you. It, is, it was handed to me and that doesn't happen very often. So it can, be as, it can be as simple as that for me. I just hear something that, for instance, with the land girls, I don't know if anyone's read that one, but it's about the Australian Women's Land Army, 
When I read that there was an Australian Women's Land Army in World War II, my reaction was, I didn't know we had one. And if I don't know, maybe other people don't know. That might be interesting. And that's the sort of spark of that idea. So th this was the first idea for the book. And then I had to think about how do I open the book. And the, the book opens with Kathleen, the mother of five. Her children are two, four, six, eight and ten. And, and the book opens with they've just had dinner and the youngest one's taken off his nappy and smeared poo everywhere. <laughs> and the other kids think it's hilarious. And she has to put him in the bath. But in the book... The hubby who's come home from work, her hard-working hubby who loves her dearly, gets in the bath first. Then all the kids get in the bath and then she gets in the bath last. That idea came from a woman who told me that's what happened in her own family. I'd gone to speak with a friend of mine's a book club group and we started talking about my book, The Women's Pages, which is set just after World War II. And we were talking about their fathers, they're slightly older than me, and they remembered their fathers at the, you know, had come home from war and what it had done to them. And this woman told the story that her, her dad worked as in a in a job where he got physically dirty during the day. He got the first bath. And I just went, ping, that's how I open this book. <laughs> With such a symbolic way of showing that women came last without not without complaint, because I do portray Kathleen as sitting in the bath thinking, every child has weed in the bath. <laughs> and it's lukewarm, and it's this stuff swirling on the surface of it. But that seemed really symbolic to me about, about the life of a, a mum back then. So that's sort of where that idea came from. And then it was also inspired by, I looked at 1956, and the, the Olympics were coming... And I set the book in Melbourne only for a bit of variety. I've set books everywhere. But particularly because the Olympics were coming and Melbourne was a buzz. And TV was coming just in time, was going to begin broadcasting just in time to show the Olympics. So Melbourne was really half excitement, half nerves. And, and half the, some of the newspapers were saying, Melbourne's not ready to be on the international stage, you know. Our, the MCG is not big enough to hold the crowds. It was just that sort of normal complaining that we still hear today. So I thought that was a really good, an interesting pivot point in Australian history as well. Mm. So, yeah, so the, the ideas come from the most random places. And I, I have to say, I did get permission from the woman to, to use the story about the bath. <laughs> I don't just steal stories if you share anything tonight. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I kind of put my two... I thought £6,000, people are... Some people will remember. I mean, it cost about £7,500 to build a home in 1956. Wow. So that was a lot of money. That is a lot of money. The first prize was £600. And then it went down in increments to four, two, even £5, some of the winners. And I kind of thought, what... Well, what would that winning that money do to two women in that era? Mm. You know, when money was tight, there was only one income in the house. You mentioned my character Ivy's a single mum. So I thought Ivy would like to win the TV for her 12-year-old son who wants nothing more than to watch Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> and so that's why she enters it, even though she's not a cook. And Kathleen is persuaded by her mum to enter the contest to give her a bit of pep because she's so exhausted looking after these, all these children. And she's only 30. 
I've got three kids. I can, can't imagine five. So that was the sort of inspiration and I kind of, then I put myself in the heads of those characters and thought, the, it was the hope of winning mm. as well. We, I had the hope today of winning the Hospital Research Foundation <laughs> house. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, and my husband Stephen, who's over there, said, quick, check the results. And I put his name in, nothing. I thought, oh, maybe he bought the tickets in my name, nothing. But you still hang on to that little bit of hope, don't you? And how it might change your life. Did you at least win a Hague's voucher? No, nothing. Or any of the might not. You are not on the winners list. Uh. Most tragic words ever. <laughs> oh. So, like I said before, and I think it's pretty clear, this book was meticulously researched, from the recipes to the products of the day that were included to the routines, the the bath, which absolutely horrified me. I still still thought about that days after. What what is your research process? It must be it must be so extensive to get that in-depth knowledge to write so authentically. I do like to get things right. For instance, I really wanted to portray I mean, I don't remember pounds, shillings and pence. I was born in 65, so it was the 1st of February 1966. Wasn't that the, the song? Does anyone know the song? 14th of, February, 14th of February 1966 or something like that. So I don't remember. I wanted to convey to the mo modern reader how, the, how much that was worth. So I went back into Women's Weekly magazines that I mentioned I research online. And I looked at the prices of things. And that's why I have at one point the character saying, oh, if I won five pounds, I could buy a new iron or, you know, how much does a, a television cost? A hundred pounds. And if you wanted legs on your TV, 20 pounds more. So a fridge was about a hundred pounds. These were huge, expensive purchases back then. And you think about, I mean, think about the cost of a TV today. You could buy one with less than a week's average wage mm. because they're made cheap, more cheaply overseas. But I, So that, that was really important to me to get that right. The recipes I sourced from the prize recipe booklet <laughs> and I also looked at other recipes that were in the weekly as well. The, the first recipe that Kathleen cooks is curried steak with spaghetti <laughs> and that was a prize-winning recipe of the week. And I included in there, she's trying to jazz up the, the, the cooking because she's a very traditional cook. Sausages with mashed potatoes, peas and carrots on a Monday. Lamb chops with sausages, uh, lamb chops with mashed potatoes, peas and carrots on Tuesday. <laughs> Fridays was fish because of God. Sundays was roast lamb. And so she tries curried steak with spaghetti. And in the interest of research, I cooked that recipe. <laughs> I must say and I what was the result? <coughs> well, I, I must say I didn't use steak because that's expensive. <laughs> I used minced beef. And I think, I don't know quite what the quality of the steak was back then, but it was probably cheaper than we pay now, but it was pretty average, actually. <laughs> it, was, it looked grey for a start. Oh, that's never a good sign. But it, ha <coughs> it had sultanas and apples in it. So it was a very, yeah. And, and, I, and my husband, Stephen, took a... I sort of served it up, right? And we went, okay. And he took a bite and said, this is just like the curries mum used to make in the 70s. 
Um, was that a compliment or a Yeah, well, it kind of was. It kind of was. It's, it's a very particular taste. Those who eat it will know. It's sort of sweet. Yeah. Because people here weren't... And we're not used to it now. I mean, a curry is a korma or a beef massaman curry I cooked the other weekend or whatever. So they were being adventurous in their own way, but it was sweetened for the palate of the time. Look, that recipe would have been perfectly good if it ditched the spaghetti... And maybe with some chow mein noodles, with some soy sauce and maybe some coriander and herbs in it, it would have just lifted it a bit, <laughs> which we're so used to now, right? But the recipes were... So I did cook all the recipes in the book. <laughs> Fish pie, don't recommend it. I was, I was telling Mercedes earlier, it was a boiled cabbage, sliced boiled potatoes, sliced boiled eggs, sliced tomato, white fish, like flaked white fish, in a casserole dish, and then white sauce, salt and pepper, and cheese on the top. So very, very white. Layers very of white. white. I didn't use a boiled cabbage. I thought that sounded a bit disgusting. So I used a wombok Chinese cabbage. Just I thought it might give it some texture and crunch, but the whole thing tasted like clag. <laughs> so I don't recommend that one. There is one in the book called Cheese Dreams, and it was... The beautiful thing is all the winners' names and addresses are in the winning booklet. So Mrs A.F. Abbott of Box 18 Melrose won £100 for her cheese dreams recipe. It's delicious. Okay, it's very quick, I'll tell you. Half a cup of cream cheese, half a cup of butter and half a cup... Oh, and one cup of self-raising flour. So you make a, like a pastry. And then you mash half a cup of bananas, half a cup of dates... Squeeze of lemon juice, cut the pastry into rounds and then put the filling in one half and fold them over like a half moon. Bit of milk on the top, sprinkling of sugar. They were amazing. No, no other sugar but the dates gave it a beautiful sweetness with the bananas. So please try that one. Do not cook the curried spaghetti or the fish pie. <laughs> I really liked the sound of gherkin scones. Oh, yeah, cheese and gherkin scones. Yeah, Yeah. I love gherkin, I love scones. I just couldn't picture them together. Yeah, no, they were good. And I grew up with gherkins being a, you know, Eastern European child. So they were delicious. With some cream cheese and a bit of salmon on the top, highly recommend. So, yeah. If you do cook any of the recipes from the book, please post photos to me on my Facebook page. I'd love to see them. <laughs> so I, I thought that was really important to cook the recipes. And I did... I was pretty selective in what I chose. Some of them just did not sound... <laughs> oh, you Lots know, of gelatin moulds. Well, luxury eggs. <laughs> eggs and cheese rice. Now, that could be OK. Spiced lima bean salad. Rice-filled rose chicken, okay, that's a prawn and oyster creole, chocolate potato cake. Oh. Has anyone ever cooked chocolate cake with potatoes? What's it like? Good. Is that you, in, is that you there, Say? Uh, yes, I've, I've, heard, I've heard of people doing it. I've never cooked it myself. Yeah. So some people say really nice. Okay. Very true, <laughs> very true. And it's not potato chips. Oh, yes, of course. Huh. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. And they wouldn't have thought about that back then, but yes, gluten-free. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, they should market that recipe now as a gluten-free alternative. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it was important for me to cook the recipes and to choose ones that I... Well, I wanted to present a, a variety of them in the book as well, some savoury and some sweet. But that was the fun part, actually, you know, like try recipes out and eat food, you know. <laughs> OK, if I have to. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like to get things right because I... If people read my books, I, I, I don't want them to think I've invented history. Of course I invent characters... But things about attitudes of the day, for example, I, I take all those things from contemporaneous accounts that from the day that I've read or research that I've done or histories of the time. So I don't like inventing history. I will put fictional characters in it, but I want people to think, well, that really happened. You know? Those comments about Melbourne, it was hilarious, you know. <laughs> the MCG won't be ready for the Olympics. <laughs> I just loved that. It was. <laughs> So, in your acknowledgements, I read that you said, and I quote, some books are harder to write than others. This was one of those books. Now, why do you think this one in particular was harder to write than your other books? Was there anything you can put your finger on or was it...? Yeah, I think I just got stuck. And I think it was... I, I, Mercedes and I both know a lot of authors in South Australia and I think a lot of us went through the same thing and I think we all did as that post-COVID kind of lag that we all kind of got distracted and, yeah, and, we, and look, to be honest, we got a new puppy as well. <laughs> the best kind of distraction. If anyone follows me on Facebook, Victoria Perman author, I'm going to be posting photos of all my cooking from the recipes, by the way, if you don't follow me. But we got a golden retriever called Maisie just as COVID hit. And it was, honestly, we didn't plan to get her before COVID. We were in contact with a breeder who unexpectedly had a dog with ten pups instead of nine or something. <laughs> One must have been hiding on the ultrasound. So we got her really quickly and then the borders were closed very suddenly when she was about six weeks old. So we managed to get her here from Victoria and it was the best distraction. Yeah. And she's beautiful, what can I say? She's the be <laughs> most beautiful dog in the whole world. Sorry, everyone. Golden retrievers are just gorgeous. Oh, she's gorgeous. But it, I think it was that and it... But it she was a real focus for the whole family, actually, we, you know, with our kids. And it's, she's been a real, yeah, locus of love, really, for all of us. Mm. But it was, I think it was COVID. Mm. It was that COVID thing where all of us struggled to tell stories that felt a bit kind of meaningless in the face of what the world was going through, actually. So I wasn't the only one who cried occasionally and was late submitting my book. I cried a um, lot too. Yeah, yeah. I think because it was personal to me in a way that it's about being a mother and being a daughter, this book. Especially for Kathleen, whose mother sees her struggling and without saying anything says, let's just enter this contest and let's just cook some things together. Mm. And her mother starts coming over one day a week mm. and helps her with the kids. Mm. And says, I'll mind the kids, you go off to the butcher and get the mints or whatever. Mm. And, and at one point Kathleen realises this is the first time in ten years she's been alone without the children. So it's that her mother seeing her, really seeing what she's going through. And in contrast, Ivy, who's the widow with a 12-year-old boy, doesn't have any family support. Her parents are in Sydney, so she's really on her own. But she finds a family of her own. And I think I really love that because we all do that. You know, we don't necessarily have blood family. We find a family. Yeah, and create, I, yeah create you create a family. family. Yeah, I love 
in the face of judgment and scorn from other people. The book is not just about cooking, I have to say, but as Mercedes and I have discussed, what I put them through is emotional and real and I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to give anything away. I do like those things to be surprises for readers and the things you might imagine about the 50s. And I was just talking about this on this event I did last night that we're all of a certain age, aren't we? We can speak freely. Um, When the pill was introduced in Australia in the 60s, it was only for married women, not for single women. And it was called family planning because it was about spacing out your children. In 1972, when Gough Whitlam was elected, one of the first things his government did was to remove the luxury sales tax on it, which was 27%, and listed on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, which made it cheaper, as everyone here would understand. That liberated women and liberated mothers from the dread of having another child when you already had five and you were 30 years old. No-fault divorce came in as well. You know, where beforehand, and our own extended family was touched by this, that if to get a divorce pre-no-fault pre divorce, there had to be a guilty party and there had to be blame laid at someone. And the reasons were infidelity, abandonment, I think it's called abuse, but it meant domestic violence, you know. There were seven reasons, I think. Being a, an asshole, you know, wasn't <laughs> one of them. So there had to be a guilty party and so someone had to have their name in the paper, because divorces were in the paper, to, oh. to name them as the guilty party. It was horrific. So when no-fault divorce came in, people could suddenly say, just don't want to be married to you anymore. And no-one had to know the reasons why. Maybe there were no reasons like infidelity or abandonment or whatever. And then the supporting parents benefit came in as well. So women who had been trapped were able to leave. Now, I'm not saying the supporting parent benefit meant you're off having holidays, but before that there had been barely anything. So this is the kind of era in which this book is written about these constraints on women and men too. And if men stepped out of the very rigid boundaries of what they were expected to be and do, they were criticised too. And I'll, I'll share a story that I researched, and it's not a spoiler for the book, it's a sort of a minor scene, but Kathleen's not feeling very well and her hubby takes the kids all to the local playground. So he's pushing the pusher with the little boy, Michael, in it, little Michael. And in the book I portray it this way because I read an, a real account of this a man was at the playground with his children and the women who were there laughed at him and said, you've turned into your wife. I thought that was just horrible. And now you wouldn't blink an eye at seeing a dad at a playground, would you? If you've got grown-up sons, you've got grandchildren yourself, it's the most natural thing in the world now for them to do that and to Mm. change a nappy. Mm. And And I loved that in that scene as well you also showed the joy that he felt at being able to spend that that time with his children which might not have necessarily been seen as the you know the domain of the man but he had such a wonderful time yeah because he was he felt the pressure too of being a sole income earner so he the pressure of five children and a wife and bringing home the bacon and that was hard for men too i'm not saying it's quite like having to wash dirty nappies in a mangle. But, but I think as a society, we put men in boxes too. 
And so I wanted to portray a little bit of that in the book. Mm, mm, I love that. So, as you just explained, you did examine some some sensitive topics in a woman's work. I won't I won't go into what they are. I don't want to give Thank away you. any spoilers. <laughs> Has anyone read the book yet? Yeah, you'll know what I mean when we say we don't want to give away spoilers. Thank you for <laughs> keeping those secret. Mm. <laughs> How. How important was it to you to explore these issues in the book? It's very important to me, actually. I've, I've written, you know, five historical books now and I, I, wanna, I always want to tackle that idea that they were the good old days. And we often say it with the best of intentions. Oh, in the good old days you could leave your front door unlocked and you'd be okay. And, you know, in the good old days... A, a woman could stay home and, you know, we could survive on a hubby's wage and that sort of thing. I don't think they were the good old days for most people. And that's the question I always ask myself. Who were they the good old days for? They were no okay for a woman who was earning 75% of a male wage and there was no childcare and women weren't allowed to do certain things. If you were a public servant, you had to quit when you got married. Younger women are always really shocked when I say that and... Graceful. Yeah, so you know we have come a long way. It's still ways to go, and so there's also if you were a disabled person in the 50s, that probably wasn't very good for you, and if you had a mental illness, that probably wasn't very good either. So I'd, I'd like to tackle that and put mm. and, and give the truth to that scenario about who were they the good old days for? Mm. As I mentioned before about you know contraception and divorce and having your divorce printed in the paper with the reasons for... And I've, I've seen these accounts, you know, a decree Nissi granted to Mr and Mrs Fred Smith of, you know, Smith Street, Marion, on the grounds of adultery. In fact, it would even have the street address, much like the, you know, the recipe mm. book. So everyone would know your business. And the no most privacy. intimate... Pardon? No privacy at no, all. No, not at all. Mm. And, and there would always be gossip and things like that. So... Yeah, I like to... I want to portray the truth of that. doesn't mean they don't laugh and have fun when Ivy forgets to put the sugar in the rice pudding. <laughs> but it's, we, we sort of look back and think it's like happy days. And, you know, I loved happy days too. I loved Fonzie. But that wasn't real either. So can you tell us about the process for coming up with the title? A woman's work. Did you come up with the title? Did your publisher come up with it? Did you know from the beginning of the novel that's what it was going to be called? How did it come about? I, I find the titles the hardest thing in the world. I think the last book I, 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 I titled myself was The Last of the Bonagilla Girls. Every other one has been my publisher. I just call it Book 2023 or something. <laughs> my publisher, Jo, is my first reader and I wait for her feedback and she just has this way, we've worked together now on six books, I think, she just has a way of encapsulating what the book's about, even in a way that I can't kind of articulate myself, which is why she's a publisher. And we were talking about it and I, I had a temporary title, which was always a placeholder, and she said, really it's about the labour of women, isn't it? It's about the work they do and when she just said, oh, it's a woman's work, and then I said, is never done. And that, so that's how the title came about. But it's uh, the one I'm writing at the moment, I'm nearly finished for next year. I don't have a title for that either. Oh, I just can't think of 
I just said, it's my job to write the book. Someone else can <laughs> give it a title. I, I agree. Hard. I mean, do, do you find it hard too? I find it so hard. I, I haven't come up with either of my titles. Yeah. But like you said, my publisher just looks at a book and just says, I've got it. Yeah. So it's like, yes, that's perfect. Of course. Of course yeah. it should be called that. I know. And that's <laughs> I have great trust in that process so I don't fret really. Yeah. But... You know, you can drive yourself crazy looking at Amazon or Booktopia or whatever to think, is there an original title in the world? No. Nope, there is not. <laughs> no. And what about this cover? Oh, Isn't it gorgeous? You must yeah. have been absolutely thrilled when they showed yeah, you that cover. Yeah, I cry when I get my covers. <laughs> how, um, did, how did that come about? Well, it was an interesting cover for HQ to come up with because the book isn't a comic look at the 1950s, as you probably guessed. And uh, if anyone knows the cover for Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, that's, there was some sort of talk in-house about having a cover like that. And my publisher said, no, it's not that kind of book. It's, it's got serious things in it and we don't want it to be a, a flippant kind of fun cover. Mm. So they... But, that was version 14 by the time I saw it. So there's a lot of internal work that goes into cover design. You would know with yours too, yeah. that they ask what I might like and I give some ideas or I send something that I think would be kind of nice or an image or... And then it goes to the, the design department and they come up with something based on the synopsis and reading a chapter or two. Then it goes back to the publisher who says, no, you've got it wrong. But it goes back and forth because it's, you know, as you all know, we look at labels, we look at covers and we make a judgment in like that, don't we? And the thing you want to do is to have someone look at the cover and go, oh, and then read the back. And if, you know, I know that myself, if someone's enticed me to read the back of a book, I might well buy it. But it's – and there's so many books out there. So yeah. I don't know if you can see there's a little – this actually came out of four different graphic elements. So there was the woman. They changed the colour of her frock. This recipe oh, – this biscuit tin here was from another image completely. And this is the head of a little child because they're both mothers. And then this background was something else. And they, that's the beautiful work of the cover designer who brings all those elements together. And puts my name on it really big. That's what I like. <laughs> That's when you know that you're a best-selling author. Is the bigger your name is, the better. You know, the more sales you've got. And I must say, when I when I was sent the cover, I called my publisher and said, "My name is so huge." <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> it's kind of a red-letter day when you do what we do, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> So, when you're working on a novel, what, what's a day in the life of Victoria? What, what does your day look like? Uh, well, I'm working on one now. So, well, I mean, aside from doing this and coming and talk to people, which is the best bit, <laughs> I try to... I was a bit behind on this one too. And I don't know who knows Tricia Stringer. The, the, or the, yeah, she's a friend. And we, we met at another book launch last year in November and we were both sitting there going, we're so behind. We just... <laughs> we just we just can't write the book. So we made a vow to email each other every Friday and it has totally worked. That's a great idea. It really was. And she's the, the loveliest person. She would never tell me off or anything like that. But it was just knowing that I had to check in with Tricia. That which really got me. Yeah, really got me thinking, I can't email her, her again and say I haven't <laughs> written anything because I've been sewing or playing with the dog. It's just <laughs> pathetic. 
<laughs> so we check in with each other every every Friday, and she's in the, in the beginning stages of writing her, I think, book for next year as well. So that has really spurred me on. So what I try to do is write at least 2,000 words a day. Whew. And if I do that in the morning, then I can play with a dog in the afternoon. <laughs> or I can sew. I really like sewing. Or, or cook or do other things or be in the garden or go for a walk or something. I, I mean, I have the luxury now of writing full time. I didn't for 10 years when I was first published. So that gives me that freedom. But I, it, that's, that's a good routine for me. Mm. Sometimes I can do more if I'm in a particular vibe, you know, and I think, oh, I know what this scene's going to be. And, but I have to give myself that discipline and of reporting into Trisha Stringer. <laughs> I think I'm going to steal that idea. I know. <laughs> and if you see her, tell her that, oh, I hear Victoria's checking in with you every Friday. <laughs> it really works. So I feel very proud of myself when I say, oh, 9,000 words this week. <laughs> But I have to do a little bit each day because I have contracts and I have deadlines to meet and I don't, you probably don't know, but, you know, Mercedes would know, it, there's a very long lead time for a book. So the book I'm going to submit on the 1st of June will be out next April. <coughs> they would prefer it a bit early, but I'm, I won't finish it by then. <laughs> because it has to be re read by the publisher they provide notes and give you feedback and then there might need to be some rewrites or some edits mm. and then it goes back to an editor who goes through it more closely, sort of almost line by line and also looks at things like you've expressed this emotion about this character in chapter three and now you're doing it again in chapter five. We don't need it twice. You know, it's that kind of deeper look at it. Mm. And then it comes back and then it goes to a line editor who then looks at every word Sometimes they, things slip through, I know, it's, it's humiliating, isn't it? So there's that whole process. And then they have to, it goes to the sales department and they start selling it into bookshops and talking to bookstores about it. Cover design happens. So it's a big process. What, what the publishers would be doing just after Mother's Day is they will be talking to bookshops about Christmas books. There's a new Trent Dalton coming, by the way, hot tip. October. For that. That's my big tip for Christmas. But that's the lead time. So, yeah, I, I know that I, I don't want to let people down and have them have a crunch at the other end. And that, you know, that will only hurt me because they don't have time to talk to bookstores about it. So I try to. And then if I've done my 2,000 words, I can reward myself and do something else <laughs> for the day. And, and, you know, I'm still thinking about it, of course. Of course. Yeah. In the shower, when you're walking the dog, yeah. every, it's always where the best ideas oh, come up. Hubby will attest, I'm often lying in bed going, oh, line, and I'll get the phone out and I'll just yeah. email myself. Yeah, I know, we're a bit obsessed, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> so you said you're working on your novel for next year. So what else is next for you? You're going on, you're going on tour? Yes, I'm going to Melbourne next week to do some dates in libraries and bookshops over there and then I'm in Clare and then I'm in... I'm doing events at Murray Bridge, Victor Harbour, West Lakes, Mount Barker, Unley and then I'm going to Mount Gambia, Narracourt and Portland. And they've, they've been great supporters down at Mount Gambia so I'm really happy to go back down there. And we get to drive through a wine, wine country. Region. Yeah, on the way. It's never a chore. It's never a chore. And then, yeah, and then hope, I mean, I'll be working on the book coming up and I'll submit on June the 1st and then I'm going to have a month off mm -hmm. in which I read. 
So, I know, I, I love my life, I've got to say. <laughs> I, I'm very glad of it. <laughs> and I'm very glad for all of you who read books. Mm. So thank you, and thank you for coming to things like this. Mm. Because it's only because of you that we have the careers we have and the booksellers um, have, the, have the shops they do. So you are a really, you are a crucial part of the cog in what we do. So thank you. You absolutely are. And on that note, I think I'll wrap it up. So thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you, Mercedes. And I think we've got Mother's Day coming up. So I think that's a great incentive to grab three, four copies of a woman's work, you know. You've all got three or four mothers, <laughs> I know. Come on, mothers-in-law. <laughs> but I'm happy to take a couple of quick questions. Yeah. Do we have time? Any questions? I just wondered whether there was a dog, the five children plus the dog. <laughs> no, Maisie's not happy that I didn't put her in the book. <laughs> OK, that's right. <laughs> you know, I didn't do that because I really wasn't sure if dogs were as popular as pets then as they are now. Oh, well, in my family, yeah? well, there are four children, but mum, we always had a dog, and mum used to cook liver for the dog oh. in the pressure cooker, and it had this awful <gasps> smell. Lucky it wasn't for you. <laughs> oh. No, I, it's, look, I'm very lucky in a sense. I didn't grow up with, well, lucky, it's just what, how it was. I didn't grow up with those sort of Anglo-Australian foods, really, as I was saying before about... So, uh, liver, I think mum did it once or twice and it was just rubbery. I didn't like it at all. It's a bit of a writing question. Mm. If you're writing 2,000 words a day, can you keep that momentum up? How many... Words would you end up in your average book? Because I'm reading one at the moment of yours that's bigger. Oh, that's the nurse's war. Is that, yeah. No, women's oh. pages. Women's pages, okay. Yeah. And yeah. so, over what period of time are you doing this 2,000 words a day? Look, that's a good question. And I don't work weekends now. I used to, when I worked, when I had a full time job, I would work on weekends and I never felt like I had a day off. Mm. And I was tired all the time. I, it comes in waves. I mean, at the moment, I'm near, really close to deadline. So, kind of, when Trisha and I made the arrangement with each other to email on Mondays, that was sort of November. So, I had, like, that Christmas, New Year, and I've been writing consistently since then. Give or take a day or two when it's Easter or whatever. But I, I, I go into... It's my training as a journalist, I think, is the way my brain works, that I work really fast at the end, and I've tried not to beat myself up, up about that anymore. I used to think that I should mm. be more consistent, but I just, my mind doesn't work that way. Mm. So, because being a journalist, you write really quick, fast, for the, for the next radio bulletin or whatever it was. You don't have heaps of time, so that's how I work best. So, there is, like, I will have time off, and over Christmas and sort of New Year, I have time off, and I'll have a, a month off after I finish this book, but it's the... When you're deep in a story, as Mercedes will know, if you walk away from the book, you forget. Yep. You, you, you forget th those things like motivation and, oh, have I mentioned this characteristic of the character already? And then you write it again and then you end up saying, I've just repeated that whole thing because you've forgotten. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I like to, someone described it to me, touch the manuscript every working day when I'm in this, this phase of writing. Yeah. What's the word count, the average word count of your... Oh, for mine, about 100,000 or so. The, the, the nurses' war was bigger. It was like 135 because the war went for four years. So, you know, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a big one. So, yeah, it's about, about 100,000, give or take. Mm. So, first draft, how long would that take you to complete... 
I'm terrible at maths. 2,000 words a day, (laughs) five days a week. Yeah, no, not that quickly. That would be like 10 weeks. No, I think this one I properly started really in January. I had, I always kind of know where where I'm going, but probably in January. Mm. And again, that's just me because I slacked off for a little while. I lost my motivation, I think, too, which is, you know, for all of us, if you've got something you love to do, you'll... How many quilters are in the room? How many unfinished quilts do you have? Yeah, it's the same. You know, you kind of think, I just have to walk away from that now and do something else. And for me, the walking away and doing something else creative is sewing. You know, I really, I love that. And I'm, I didn't make this dress today, but I make dresses for myself and shirts and things. Nothing too complicated. No French seams or anything. No zips. But that's my outlet where I still want to do something creative and I, I listen to a podcast and I sew and just bought myself an overlocker. Very excited. So, yeah, that's my little creative thing. But you have to step away from that because otherwise it feels, it feels a bit like a job and you get tired yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't do anything else really. Best job in the world. It is the best <laughs> job in the world. And I think that's, a, that's the joy of whatever it is you love to do. Absolutely. You know, if you can feel joy in it. Now, you're not going to feel that every day, but if you're lucky enough to do something you love and get, and get joy out of it for the majority of the time, I think, you know, that's a lucky position mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe one more? Are you allowed to hint at what your next book's about? Mm, okay, Ooh. I can hint. <laughs> Very good question. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit suspicious, but no, I'm, I'm nearly almost done. So this one's set in the same year as a woman's work, 1956, but it's going to be in Sydney. And it's about that... It's about behind the scenes of an old-fashioned radio serial like Blue Hills. Did anyone, does anyone remember listening to Blue Hills? Yeah. I, I, we, we didn't listen in my house, so I don't remember it. And you know what the great tragedy is? There's barely any episodes that were archived by the ABC. There's a half dozen from the 70s. None of those early episodes exist. That, they, were, they weren't recorded. They, or, the, or if they were recorded, they were wiped. So, yeah, isn't that a tragedy? I mean, Gwen Meredith wrote every episode of more than 5,000 episodes of Blue Hills on her own. So she's sort of been the inspiration for me to tell that story about, you know, what she must have faced back then. Extremely talented woman who wrote novels as well and did a series during the war. She was commissioned actually during World War II to write an uplifting series for farmers to introduce new farming concepts. Very niche. Yeah, very niche. And kind of propaganda-ish, but in a positive way. I mean, and then that ended and she, she used some of those characters and then developed Blue Hills. So she was a phenomenal writer and, and very inspiring to me. But, yeah, there were five 15-minute episodes a week and she wrote them all. Sorry, that's my alarm. <laughs> that, that's the pat the dog alarm. Yeah, so it's sort of set in that era and I'm, I started off at the ABC as a journalist and so it was, it's fun to look back and do some research about what women faced as broadcasters and producers at the ABC in that era. And there's one great story which I'm including in the book. I'll give you a little taste. 
There were a handful of women producers. So those who came up with story, program ideas and were the, were the brains behind and driving force behind programs. And one of them had been to the BBC for training. She was vastly experienced. She came back here and was relegated to sort of nothing serious. The powers that be wouldn't let her do anything meaningful. Every idea she put forward was poo-pooed. So one day she went into her office, opened the window of the ABC, which was in King's Cross back then, and threw her typewriter out of the window <laughs> and quit. Really, <laughs> I, just, I just love that story so much. So I'm including that in the book and giving her tribute, but she was so immensely frustrated uh, at, at the, what it was like for women back then. And yeah. so luckily she didn't kill anybody, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, those old typewriters weighed, you know, probably 15 kilos. You couldn't lug them around. So, yeah, she's very lucky. Yeah, she quit. <laughs> so that's next year's book, April next year. And I know I don't have a title because I'm terrible at titles. I'll have to send that to my editor. <laughs> Thank you for the question. It sounds like it's going to be an absolute cracker. Well, I, I'm having fun. Yeah. I'm having fun writing that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just interested about your writing process. We listened to another author and she does all her research first and then, you know, knows exactly where she's heading and writes the book. You said you re research a lot. Gee, this is Mike. It's really freaky. <laughs> yeah. Do you research first or do you do it along the way? Uh, a bit of both. I kind of get the idea for the characters, but then I will often say I want to portray, for instance, the book I'm writing now is the, the inside of what a radio broadcasting studio looked like. So I will just have a section saying, more here. <laughs> and then, because I, I want to get the story right in my head and have the story work, and then I'll go in and put that detail in afterwards. I mean, it's, it's just fun detail about the, the sound effects man's table with the coconut shells, you know, for the horses. <laughs> And that sort of thing. So it's, it's that kind of detail I, don't, I go and put in after. But I can go down rabbit holes with research as a way of distracting myself from actually doing the writing. So I have to be really careful. And then what happens is I'll put it in the book because I think it's really interesting. And my, my publisher and my editor will say, petticoats, Victoria. <laughs> You're showing your research petticoats. So now they just say petticoats to me and I know exactly what they mean. It's a bit like you have two characters, you know, and one will say to the other, oh, that new washing machine's very interesting. <laughs> and you'll say, yes, as a matter of fact, the washing machine was invented in 1923 by Bill Smith. And, <laughs> and, and that's the temptation with, for me with sort of doing the research. I, sometimes I find things fascinating and... I'm pulled back that no one thinks that's interesting, Victoria, <laughs> except you. So I do, I, I, I do a bit as I go along um, because I have, to know the, I have to know what's possible in the era that I'm researching as well. When I wrote The Nurses' War, I did, I did all my research at the beginning because I needed to know about this, for those who read it, it's set in Harefield Hospital in, in England in World War II. World War I, sorry. And Australian nurses and doctors were recruited here and were sent to work over at that hospital, which was... I just loved that story. It was owned by an Australian couple, and she was a millionaire, Letitia Billiard-Leak from Glencoe down in the southeast. 
and she married an, a Sydney solicitor and they went to England. She had to fight to get her share of her fortune. It's a great story. And they bought a property at Harefield, Harefield House. And when the war began, she, had, she and her husband had two sons serving and they decided to donate the house for the duration of the war plus six months to be a hospital place of recuperation for the Australian troops. But their stipulation was that only Australian nurses, only Australian doctors, only Australian masseuses and other staff, all had to be Australian. So there was this little haven of Australia in the middle of England and, and I had to know all about the hospital before I started writing that because I didn't want to make things up. But I found beautiful stories like one injured soldier woke up you know, and an Australian nurse talked to him and they recognised the accent and so they would say, hello Australia, you know, to the nurses and things like that I couldn't have made up. It's just so specific and beautiful. So that was very research heavy because I too had to, I was constrained by the timeline of the war. You know, obviously there are dates when peace was declared, when Gallipoli happened, for example. And after Gallipoli, the, the small hospital which they thought might fit 50 patients had hundreds and hundreds of patients because all the hospitals on the front and in the Mediterranean in Greece and, see, too many books ago now, were all full basically. So they put the injured on ships because the carnage was so terrible and they all ended up back in England. So I had to factor those things. Oh, that's when the patients arrived. That's when there was a lull because fighting had, you know, the, the people weren't being killed and injured in the numbers they were. So... Yeah, it's a bit, bit of both. And as I said, I'm really particular about getting the details right because people will read my books and assume that's the history and I want them to be correct in assuming that that's the history. Mm. So, yeah. It, it, it's a blessing and a curse, really. <laughs> Mostly around too much. <laughs> Petticoats, as I said. I mm. love that. <laughs> Do we have any last questions? Are you? Do you write directly onto the computer or do you organise your ideas and the structure of your plot in a series of cards and a hierarchy of cards? No, I do it in on computer. Right. I use a, I use a writing program called Scrivener, Yeah. if people know that. It's fantastic because you can kind of do what you were saying. Do you use Scrivener, Mercedes? I don't, but everyone's recommended it to me. I think I might have to. It's brilliant for me because I can kind of do that card thing. It, it's, well, it can divide my screen, my computer screen, into three separate columns, if you like. In the middle is where I type the story. On the right-hand side, I can paste pictures and web links and quotes and things like that so I can always go back to my research. And on the left-hand side, it has all... I can outlay the structure of the book, like Act 1, Chapter 1, Chapter 2, and I can just drag them and move them, you know, in, in place. So that's really brilliant for me. That's what I like about very it. Very helpful. So I do kind of organise... When I'm vaguely plotting out a book, I will say, in Chapter 1, this happens, Chapter 2... Something else happens, you know. And that's kind of the, the same thing. But, yeah, I, it's all on screen now. Yeah. But, but whatever works. I mean, if you're writing, whatever works for you, you know. J.K. Rowling, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the plot outlined for Harry, her first Harry Potter. She had a big grid. She's what's called a plotter. Mm. I'm kind of a pantser with a vague idea of the plot. <laughs> How do you work, Sadie's? 
I'm very much a pantser. Yeah. <laughs> so that means we start the book with an idea but we have no idea what's going to happen. And that can be fun too because you kind of surprise yourself. But J.K. Rowling, her grid was chapter one, scene one, chapter two, scene two. And she had plotted out exactly what was going to happen in each scene. Wow. Meticulous and I envy it a lot but I just can't work that way. Like James Patterson write out an outline of the entire chapter that's almost as long as the chapter itself and then we'll go and, re go and write the chapter. <gasps> Jane Harper does that too. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed her and she said, yeah, she, had, she does a 60,000 word outline of the book. Wow. Which is basically half that the book. The I know when she said that on stage, I stared at her and <laughs> she thought I'd had a stroke. And, and she said, if anyone's read Exiles, her most recent one, which is set in South Australia, she said she, she knew what she wanted folk to go through. So she did a 60,000 outline and then she goes back in and adds the texture like the scenery and the... She said she had to then come to the Barossa to do her research. Yeah. <laughs> Clever woman. And so she then put in the detail about what things looked like and smelt like, tasted like and a bit more about the emotions the characters were going through and so on. So, yeah, it's... it's I was stunned at that. That's, it's obviously working for her. <laughs> yeah, it's working for her. So, you know, whatever works. And as I was saying before, I've kind of learnt my process now that... I'm really terrible at the beginning because I think I've got heaps of time and then I go, oh, no, I've got to tell Tricia on Friday. <laughs> and then I, I crack on and get my, frankly, I apply the bum glue as Nora Roberts says. Any Nora Roberts fans in the house? I'm a huge fan. I love her writing. But that's what she says. Ooh. You've got to apply the bum glue and sit in the chair until you finish and type lots. And, and whatever makes you... Sit in the chair and whatever process works for you is what works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if we don't have any final questions, I think we'll wrap it up and... Yep. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so, so, so much. Thank, thank you, Mercedes. Great Sharing questions. your insight and wisdom and knowledge. A Woman's Work is just an absolutely incredible book. I could not put it down. Oh, so you, you are all absolutely going to love it. <laughs> thank you. And thanks, everyone, for coming. Oh, and thanks to Marion Library too. Thank you, Paula and Andrea. Thank you so much. <laughs>